Hey there, it's Liz. Consider this a warning. Keep your children away because we're talking about erotic poetry today. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy. Let's get started. Well, hello there, and welcome to Planet Noun. You know, there is nothing like good talks with longtime friends. You know, those conversations between decades-old pals can sometimes get pretty personal and adult, especially if your friend has written a book of erotic poetry. Her name is Rare Epiphany. Her government name? Pamela Best. And she's one of the best poets I've ever heard. Maybe I'm partial because she's my friend. But mm, come to think of it now, she's just that good. Now, we caught up in person just outside of Philadelphia to talk about her book. Part of this interview takes place in a car on the way to her cousin's house. And we start our conversation by talking about the difference between sexuality and eroticism. There are things that are erotic that are keenly not sexual. There are things that are sexual that are definitely not erotic or sensual. So what's the difference between all three? Well, something that is sexual has to do with a function. You know, you can have sex and not enjoy it. <laughs> you can have sex and there may be nothing sensual about it. Doesn't mean it's not good. Um, it's just not sensual at all. It's just the act. Eroticism and sensuality are more about the art of pleasure, not just the act of pleasure. Something can be erotic. There can be music that's erotic. It puts you in a mood. It takes you somewhere. It paints a picture. It, it creates a vibe, a feeling. It's a total kind of experience. And it can involve sex. Sex can be involved in it. But um, you could have something truly sensual and erotic that has absolutely no sex involved. And a lot of poets we're doing very highly sexual vulgar <laughs> just I mean I don't blush easily but I mean some of the stuff it was like oh okay yeah I could have done without that and I wanted to write a book that talked about intimacy that talked about the relationship that couples have that kind of touch all points it could be keenly sexual and erotic or it can be something as simple as, you know, a kiss on the neck. I have a piece in the book called On My Neck, and it just talks about what led up to it. It paints a picture that gives you this, you might not see it happen, but you know it's going there. Like, oh, the path to it has been led. Oh, I can go, I, in my mind, I know what's happening. You can see it without me saying the vulgar terms for it. And I wrote it over time, but I never planned to publish anything. It was the book that almost never was. But a friend of mine pushed me into doing it. And he was like, you need to publish this and people need to, to read this and experience what sensuality and eroticism are. Well, I said, okay. That's how the book showed up. And I, you know, being the growing up Adventist and church and all of that and what it involves made the decision to publish a book of erotic poetry kind of difficult. Why so? Yeah, I mean, we are very uptight about naturally occurring things. We are we pretend in church life that, you know, sex does not exist. It is not an enjoyable function. We should never talk of it. It should never be spoken of. It just should never. You know, in my mind, it was like, well, last time I looked around the church, there were members, and these members all came from some act of copulation somewhere. 
Somebody in the church having sex. Y'all having babies right and left. Somebody is having <laughs> sex. You should be having good sex. And, and 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 let me just, you know, give you a few hints on what good sex or what good romance or what good love looks like. It makes me think about Anita Baker. I want to know what good love feels like. Good love. Good love. And why not? Because God made it so. Hallelujah. He did. And God did not have to make sex pleasurable. It could have been an act to create, to procreate. Which is what it is. Go, you know, go have some babies and that's it. But it did not have to be a pleasurable act. God intentionally made sex pleasurable. Okay. It's pleasurable. You're supposed to enjoy it. And if you're not, something's wrong. Fix that. (laughs) Oh, fix that. Yes, please fix it, Jesus. Fix it like you said you would. But you not know, baby Jesus, grown up grown, Jesus, grown man Jesus. But it's <laughs> it's it is it's. I hate that we, if we talked about sex, you know, if we didn't make it so taboo, maybe some of the issues we have would not exist. Maybe they just wouldn't exist. Maybe it would be a lot easier if we would just talk about sex yes talk about what the purpose and the intent of it was so people would stop having these bad taboo issues around sex because I know people who are married that still have taboo issues about sex because they never learned about sex they never learned about their own bodies they never experienced what real pleasure was like so they get married and they do the act without ever understanding the art of the act That's what Soul Kisses is an attempt to do to further that conversation, the written conversation, to help people understand more about that art. Is that that a correct interpretation? That is correct. As a matter of fact, the first place that Soul Kisses was um, introduced and um, brought up to my mortified soul was at church. I was on the praise team and the director of the praise team was so happy that I had published this book that he literally stood in front of the church and held up a copy of this book to tell them of my achievement. Now, mind you, you've seen the cover. Yes. It's It's the silhouette of a naked woman. In a thong. What well, looks like yes, a thong. It is a thong. Yeah, I was absolutely mortified. <laughs> oh but I sold several copies. <laughs> so, um... You wasn't that mortified. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was like, did he just do that? Uh, but yeah, they, they got several copies after sunset. Um, Wait, this was at a seven church? This was at a seven church. During the high divine worship service, <laughs> I died a thousand deaths. Woo, a thousand vegetarian deaths. A thousand vegetarian deaths. I died them on that stage Woo. that day. I could not believe he just pulled that book out. It was like, what we need to do is celebrate this accomplishment. And I was like, oh God. Oh, Lord. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> I forbid my mother to read it. And she's like, you know, that's the first thing I'm going to do, right? <laughs> Wait, does your mom have a copy? Yes, she does. 
And she's read it? Yes, she has. And what, what's her reaction? Um, yeah. She she actually enjoyed the book, which was, was uncomfortable for me. She shouldn't have enjoyed the book. I, she's my mother. You, no. She's never had sex. Except oh, wait a time. <laughs> the one time. <laughs> to make you. To make me. And then there was no need for that. Although my father countered that idea all the time. He used to write me letters um, when I was in college. He wrote me letters when I was at Oakwood. And there would be sweet letters. And then at the end, he would be like, okay, love you. And then he would like, P.S., I'm chasing your mom around the house naked. Just like, you know, he would just mortify me like that. Because that's what he lived for. It's like, oh, my God. Oh my gosh. So you are comfortable with the idea of other people opening up and, you know, enjoying and and relishing the art of sensuality and eroticism. But when it comes to your mama, not when my not my mother. No, she can't. She can't do it ever ever ever. <laughs> so the second part of our conversation took place after we got back to her hotel suite where we crashed after a full dinner and had an old school sleepover complete with sweets her cousin's bomb cheesecake oh my gosh and of course along with that cheesecake we had a little bit of girl talk here's more with rare epiphany author of the erotic poetry book soul kisses i have two books the first book was of love the poetry of rare epiphany that was my debut book and the second book is soul kisses are there more books to come yes is there Soul Kisses Part 2 kind of coming? Yes. Once I got into the groove of writing erotic poetry, it was hard to get out of the groove. Like, I had to concentrate and focus. I was asking for challenges and give me songs. Okay, stop. I just had to add that. <laughs> <laughs> you know I ain't got no sense. So, I did. I, I had to get all of this inspiration to write this this book. And then once I was done, it was like, every time I picked up my pen, it was something erotic came out of it. And I was like, hey, 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 stop it. <laughs> but, um, so I finally started writing some other pieces and began to become intentional about what I wanted to write. So there will be um, a part two of erotic poetry coming. But I'm also working on my poetic autobiography. So I'm trying to write the story of who I am, where I come from where I'm trying to go, what created the person that I am. And that's been very interesting. It's been a rough and interesting ride. It's not all pretty poetry. I mean, I would think it's well-written poetry, but um, it delves into a whole lot about what made me who I am and having to, you know, it's it's a huge amount of catharsis. It's, it's healing to actually deal with the ugly things that have happened. So writing the pieces that explore being molested as a child or being raped, writing the pieces that talk about why I am the way I am about certain things, having to explore that and answer the question just for me to figure out, you know, why why am I writing erotic poetry and I write about the desires of, of learning what good touch is and um when i really don't like being touched when you were younger part of the touch was not good and yes. not invited right and so for me having to put things in in its place you know figuring out that my son is ultra affectionate and i am not mm-hmm. so when he he's like he's a hugger 
And so he's always hugging me. And it takes everything in me not to recoil from his hugs. And then having to stop and say, Pam, why are you like that? And realizing that it's not that I don't like hugs. I do. There is a piece of me that does not like to be touched. Period. Because it does not understand. It's like that, that five-year-old does not understand that this touch is different than the bad touch. And so I'm really having to delve into those pieces and write those pieces out. And it's been, I, you know, I, I would write a piece and I have a couple of people that I bounce stuff off of. And, you know, I'm really like, this piece tried to kill me. It, it, it tried to kill me. I almost did not get through writing this piece because I can write and get to a point and I'll have to stop. Like, I can't, I can't finish this. What makes you have to stop? Because in order to get the piece written, I got to go back to a place of being extremely helpless and being extremely vulnerable and not feeling heard. And I got to feel what I felt then in order to convey what it is I'm trying to convey. And I, delving into that kind of pain or fear is not necessarily something you would volunteer to do. Like, I'm like, uh, some of this stuff I don't think I could have written before just because mentally, psychologically, I, I wouldn't prepared. When you say before, do you mean before a specific time period in your life? Was it after a series of experiences or is there like a defining moment where you said, you know what, I think I can write this? I think it's more of a, I, I don't know that there was a defining moment per se. I think it was a progression of, I'm an open book. And I'm an open book simply because I lived so much of my life in secrets that I refused to do that anymore. And, and that was probably, I didn't tell my mother about any of the stuff in my life until I was 23. And once I told my mom and once I got the secrets out, it was so freeing to not be ashamed of what I didn't need to be ashamed of. I didn't do anything wrong. And I had been living in this shame for all this time for something I didn't do. Once I let go of that, it was like, you know, screw it. I think the worst has been done to me. Not much worse can happen to me, so I'm not afraid of it. I didn't want to go back to it, and I didn't necessarily want to re-experience it. Like, telling something, telling something is like telling a story. So I can tell you, oh yeah, I was molested from the time I was five to the time I was eight. I can tell you that. To go back and try to convey what that is like requires me to dig into somewhere deeper than I'd ever intentionally tried to go before. And it was ugly and it didn't feel good. And there was a lot of tears and there was a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear. And I don't like feeling it. And I would get to the piece and, and poems come to me in pieces. And they come to me as a surprise to me and just like it is a surprise to anybody else. I don't know what I'm going to write. I just start writing. And there are things that are not revealed to me. They don't become 
the light bulb until I physically write it or physically type it. And once I type it and look at it, it's as much a revelation to me as it is to anyone else. Because it's how I discover things about, it's like, dang, that is really where this came from. I wrote a piece that starts with, I'm a control freak, fiercely independent, and I don't like to lean. Because those are three things that are true about me. And then I just started writing. And in the middle of writing this, it was, I'm a control freak, fiercely independent, and I don't like to lean because I was a controlled freak, fiercely in deep, intent on not liking to lean. Like, I, I was a good girl. I was praised for being a good girl by a bad man because I was a controlled freak. I did what I was supposed to do. I did as I was told. And I realized that I kind of translated all this stuff psychologically into reverting back to I don't like to lean because I don't feel like I can trust anybody. And it's not that I feel like somebody's intentionally out to get me. It's just that I think it's easy to not be a priority. So my protection is not anybody else's priority. So I had to make it mine. It's really like sitting on a psychiatrist's couch and just writing. And then whatever comes out, comes out. I don't plan a poem. I just kind of start writing. And the poem writes itself. And then I read it. And I'm like, wow, okay. I've gone back and read poems I've written in the past and don't remember writing them. I'll be like, who wrote this? I hope that. You like date everything that you write? I don't date anything. I should. I'm so not organized like that. It's easier to do so now because I type everything. And so everything has a date stamp. So I'll be like, when did I write this? And I'll be like, 2010. What the hell was I going through? Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, this this new project is really, it's it's cathartic. It's healing. Because it's a progression. I get to see a part of the progression, you know, from from who I was to, to where I am and how I got here. So I don't write in order. Um, I have a couple of pieces near the front, you know, the early part of life and some pieces in the middle and some pieces near the end. And I, um, I ended the book. It's already, I already have the ending to it because there is no ending. It's It's just where I am. And this is where I am now and and then I'll have to live out the rest of what this this story means but there's a poem I wrote and I really I really didn't realize how I felt or did not feel about marriage and why I felt the way I felt and it's probably one of the shortest pieces I ever wrote aside from a haiku but it it just talks about sitting bare left hand and a heart running on empty And I never thought I really wanted to be married. And I realized that it wasn't that I didn't want to be married. It's just that I didn't want to be disappointed. So I didn't want to even think about wanting something. And that translates to everything in my life. I don't hope for much because hope begets expectation. And expectation begets anticipation. And that can be get a great reward or that can 
beget great disappointment. And I'm so tired of being disappointed. So I just stopped dreaming. And that was a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place to not want anything and to not dream because too afraid to work for something that won't pan out. I don't know how I would deal with the disappointment. So how do you deal with that now? Is that where you still are now? Or are you, have you worked your way out of that space? Or are you still walking your way out of that space? I'm still walking my way out of that space. I surround myself with very ambitious people. I have some very ambitious friends. You know, one of my best friends, her name is Linda, and she's an attorney. She's the type of woman that would sit me in her car. And we would drive around looking at houses, not just regular houses. I mean, mansions that were for sale. We would tour houses and all kinds of things because I don't own a home and I've never thought I would. And she refuses to let me stay there. She needs me to understand you can have this. We're going to walk around in these houses with these realtors and we're going to do this because I need you to understand that it is something you can have. With my catering business, it, it was, this is something you can have. You can do this. Let me call somebody and make a recommendation. You can do this. So with me publishing a book, it was kind of the first book was, I don't need to wait for somebody to tell me that my book needs to be published. I can self-publish this book. And I did, and I had a, a book release party. And I remember my mother flew to Atlanta for my book release, which was major. My mother don't, poetry, not. But she flew to Atlanta for my poetry book release. And so did Rand. My boyfriend flew from Philadelphia for the, the release party. And I was like, wow, like, okay, wait a minute. Like, they came to support me. And I was peeling around and I had to drop my son off to the daycare, the, well, the evening care spot. And um, I had to go pick up um, my friend Steve. And we got to the book signing probably about 10 minutes late. I was so nervous because these people had flown in and I did not want them to see me fail. I, in my head, I didn't think anybody was really coming to this book signing. I thought, you know, we'd have a couple of people there, whatever. So when we pull up to the spot, it's like an office park. And we pull up, and there's other stuff in here. So it's, it's packed. We can barely find a parking space. We get there. And I'm like, okay. I get to the door. And the venue probably comfortably holds 40, 50 people. We're at a cafe that I used to do poetry at. There were probably about 150 people packed like sardines in this spot. And I walked in wondering what else was going on. And I was like, are these people here for my books? <laughs> I was just like, what? My fear was that they would see me fail. And then I get here and there's this whole truckload of people to support me. I was blown completely away. I, I still have a couple of pictures of that night. And I was just like, this is crazy for me because I don't expect people to follow through. And they did. And they all showed up. I met a couple of people who their uh, Michael 
based and used to have a website called I See Color. Mm-hmm. It was kind of the, the kickback to, I don't see color at all. Yeah, mm-hmm. you do. You see me as a whole person mm-hmm. kind of thing. And uh, there was a singer on the site. Her name was Casual, and she's amazing. I had never met this woman before in my life, a real person. Like, but she was amazing. So when I look up from the stage and I see her standing there, just because she saw my flyer on the site, I was just like, oh my God, it's Casual. Wow. You know, and there are people from my, um, my job, my old job, from the church I used to work at with my son's father that I had worked at in years, just all sorts of people that I hadn't seen in forever or, you know, people I was friends with on Facebook or, you know, and they showed up. It, it restored some faith in, in that I was doing something that I was supposed to do and um, released the book. And then I decided I was going to write this Soul Kisses book, and which was crazy because I was like, you don't even perform erotic poetry. But I had written all this poetry and I was bouncing stuff off people. And I decided I was going to re- release the book on Valentine's Day um, of 2014. And um, I did, and I didn't expect much. And then it was like I started getting pictures from people who, once they finally got their copies of the book, they would take pictures of the book on their coffee table. Or what really freaked me out was like my aunt took a picture of the book. (laughs) So she's holding the book, and she takes a picture of it. And in the background, you see her husband, my (laughs) uncle back there. And she was like, he got the book. I was nauseous because I was like, I don't, I can't, I can't unsee that. Why? Why? Because they're about to walk, walk, walk after reading your poetry. I can't. I was like, I I need anybody except y'all, the people I know. You can't. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's the same thing like we were talking about before. Yeah. Anybody but your mama. My mama, aunts, man. I don't need to know any of that stuff. No mamas. No, no uncles. None of that. No. Um, it's, it's, it's cool. It's a cool journey. And Soul Kisses. Let's go back to Soul Kisses. Yes. What kisses. are a couple of your favorite pieces in Soul Kisses? Probably the first piece for that book is um, based on a song by an artist in Atlanta named Joy. And she has a song called Lick. And I wrote a poem about it. <laughs> Like to hear? Here you go. Here you go. That's what happened. I mean, like, I listened to her song, Lick, and I was like, that is such an interesting piece. And so she talks about, you know, she she does a lot of crazy metaphorical type stuff. Like, Joy is like the female version of Andre 3000 kind of thing. And she does this thing where she's like, I lose all control when you grab a hole um, and you do your trick. I love it when you lick. And then it's, she doesn't, you know, you are lock and key, you know, every part of me. But she she never explicitly says anything other than when you lick. Like, it's implied what you licking. But it doesn't... How do you know the, she's not talking about fingers or right. toes? You don't. You have no idea. Or an earlobe. You just don't know. You just don't know. <laughs> but the, way, the way she says it, you kind of be like, mm-hmm, I know what you're talking about, Joy. I know what you're talking about, girl. <laughs> but I, I, I like that piece, I guess, because it was the inaugural piece. It was the first piece. There are so many pieces in, in the book that I really 
really like. Which is not easy to do because I write a lot of stuff I don't like. Ain't nobody ever seen it. <laughs> but um, there are a lot of pieces in the book. Lick is one. Anticipation, which is the poem that's on the back of the book. Okay. Um, is one of my favorite pieces. And um, I love the leading pieces. So I look there a little, there's a spot where there's a few haikus in there. There's one called O. Um, and it talks about, you know, like sweet honeyed moans. And I, I like pictures. So there are quite a few of those where um, there's a piece called um, On My Neck, which is another inspired by a song by Erica Badu that says, I want somebody to come up behind me and kiss me on my neck. I was like, yes, Erica, me too, me too, girl, me too, girl. But the piece is actually a story, and I and I like writing in stories, so it's about having a meal with somebody. The tension after the meal It's like, okay, so we had this meal, and, you know, He's licking his fingers like from just it was just such a wonderful meal. And you're you're watching him like just suck gravy or barbecue sauce or whatever off of his fingers. And it's like it takes you somewhere that ain't dinner. It goes straight <laughs> to dessert in your head and you try to collect yourself. So literally in the poem, it's kind of like, OK, so she's busying herself cleaning, you know, the table off. Let me get that dish from you. Let me get the hell out of this room. You know, let me go. And I'm trying to wash dishes and get myself together. And the poem goes through the emotions you feel when it's like, OK, girl, look, get it together, get it together, get it together. You know, think about dolphins and bunnies and stuff, something. But in all of the being lost in your own thoughts about the things you really want to do and you think it's just you because you're crazy in the middle of washing the dishes you drop the dish in the water because you can feel even though he hasn't touched you you can feel him standing behind you and it's like oh he's standing right there and then the whole poem ends with him kissing her on her neck and you know what happens after that. But I don't need to tell you what happens. Mm-hmm. It's like it's it's pointing you in the direction of, okay, well, you know, and that's when trouble happens. <laughs> is, it, is it really trouble? I mean. Is it trouble? It's trouble, kind of trouble, trouble you like trouble. to get in. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I like stories. Mm-hmm. And like I said, these stories don't tell themselves to me and then I write them down. They come as I'm writing. Mm-hmm. So I'm just as surprised by anybody else what comes out of my pen or what <laughs> comes out of my mouth. And people don't have to be afraid of erotic poetry. No. Because it's, you know, we all got here some kind of how. We were all the product of somebody having sex. Erotic poetry is about painting this pretty picture, this artistic way of looking at intimacy and um like i said before it's more art than act it's the art of what leads up to the act or what should lead up to the act regardless of whether that act is an act of love or an act of lust you know it's it's kind of how we arrive it's it's the scenery Mm -hmm. so it's not point a and it's not necessarily point b it is the journey 
between A between and B. Two points. And then there are some pieces in the book that actually, you know, once you get to the destination, they kind of tell you what's going on there. But it is an exploration. That's what eroticism and, and sensuality is about the way something makes you feel. A meal can be sensual. I think probably the most sensual or erotic act for me is when your man washes your hair. It is there is something so therapeutic about it. There's something intrinsically, you know, nice about having your hair washed or combed, you know, that kind of thing. What about scratching dandruff? Ooh, don't let him scratch down. I might marry him. I might marry him. <laughs> Because if you up in there with a comb just right, I, I might I might marry you. Um, but it is. There are intimate acts that have nothing to do with implicitly with sex. So the book explores the feeling. It is what makes you feel sexy as hell. It can be a dress. It can be shoes. It can be just the way he looks at you. It can be the way he says your name. And like he tastes each syllable. Mm-hmm. Like somebody who says your name, like he can text that thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, the command of voice. Someone who explores what it is you like. And it could be flowers at noon. It could be a violin player who shows up at your lunch. It, it, it's those things, that feeling that you get, the anticipation. The the butterflies, the simple kisses, the looks from across the room that make you be like, okay, as soon as this is over, as <laughs> soon as this is over, mm, me and you rendezvous, 11 p.m. by the fountain. <laughs> it's that. And so people don't need to be afraid of that. People should embrace more of that, more intimacy. You know, not necessarily more sex, but more intimacy. I mean, that's a recipe for wonderfulness and happiness and and feeling treasured and cherished. When people make you feel that way, then it makes the act that much better. You know, it always says that for women, sex is more mental. So... Foreplay can start that morning. You pack my lunch for me. Or the call you get at noon. It's the preparation for that night. If you have properly prepared, it ain't going to take much once I get there. That's Atlanta-based poet and singer Pamela Best. Her stage name is Rare Epiphany. Now read more about her book, Soul Kisses, including links to her online bookstore where... You can get Of Love, the poetry of Rare Epiphany, or you can get Soul Kisses if you feel and grow and frisky. Find the link under the podcast tab at planetnown.com. Hey, thanks again for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter and Instagram, and share. And until next time, take care.